thank you for your amazing love for us that was demonstrated through your willingness to bankrupt heaven, give up the glory of heaven, take on the form of a servant, humble yourself, become as a man so that you could die on a cross for sins you hadn't committed, but that you would die in the place of sinners like us. Pray that we would see just how simple you made the plan of salvation, made it so simple that children are supposed to be able to understand it, simply recognizing that they have a problem, a need, that they are sinners who have sinned and the consequence of that sin is they're separated from you, but that you made a way to rescue them by sending your son to pay the debt that they owed. And that if they'll just accept by faith what you've already done on their behalf, they can be born again. They can be born into your family. They can be saved from the eternity they deserve apart from you and they can be saved to an eternity spent with you in heaven. And all through faith is a result of your gracious substitution on their behalf. Pray that we could proclaim that message clearly, that we wouldn't add to it or complicate it or confuse it, but just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's not about what we can do for God, but it's about what he's done for us. It's not about how much we can give up for him or what we can do to prove our love to him. It's about him having proven his love for us as he sent his son to die in our place. Pray that we could keep the focus in the right place on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Pray that as a church community, we could shine a bright light for you, that we would be a reflection of your love as we go out into the community around us, that as we minister to one another, we would do that as cloaked in your love as well. Pray that we could do this with a unity of purpose, where we keep the main things the main things, strive together for the furtherance of the gospel, that we would minister to one another in a way that would seek to build up and not tear down. Thank you for this time we can spend in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the screen behind me, the title of this morning's sermon is Be Like-Minded. Be Like-Minded. And interpreted literally, being like-minded involves thinking the same thing or thinking the same. Now, although you may experience a greater percentage of similar thinking with certain individuals, thinking the same as another person about everything is impossible because God made each individual unique. There really is no such thing as being totally like-minded if it involves thinking the same because people are individual, people are unique, and God designed it that way. You see, these uniquenesses were designed by God to benefit the whole church body, which is made up of many different parts for the good of the whole body. You see, a body doesn't need two right thumbs. A body needs a right thumb and a left thumb. A body doesn't need four eyes. A body needs two eyes. And so if everybody's trying to be the same or to fit into a certain mold, then the body is missing out on the uniquenesses that God designed from the beginning so that the body could be complete when it comes together, when many different parts come together. And so when the Bible exhorts believers to be like-minded, the focus is not on everyone conforming to a common mold or adopting identical opinions and beliefs so much as it is on promoting developing and encouraging a spirit of harmony. Now, at the same time, while that's happening, while remaining unique, but striving together with common love for Christ, a common love for one another, and a common outlook, objective and perfect, and purpose. So when you think about unity, what are we looking for? We're not looking for mirror copies. We're not looking for people to be identical. We're looking for a common outlook, objective, and perfect, and purpose. You could say unity in essentials. 
not unity in every specific detail. So essentials instead of details. And too often, we have a perspective within even the church community, whether it is conscious or unconscious, that we need to have identical perspectives and views and opinions in the details. And the reality is that God's Word, when He talks about this idea of being like-minded, He's talking about harmony of spirit, harmony of purpose, overall big-picture purpose. What is the objective or the outlook that we're striving together for? And as we do that, we see unity in having a common love for the one who loved us first. We love him because he first loves us. So what brings us together or makes us like-minded is that we have a shared love for a common Savior, one who loved us so desperately that he would come to seek and to save those who were helpless and hopeless and hell-bound apart from him. Then we should have a common love for one another because the Bible repeatedly says, love one another as I have loved you. So that's something that creates that sense of having that unity of purpose, unity in essentials, where we're thinking about having a focus on harmony amongst one another as we have a common cause, a common Savior, and a common love for one another. So as some of you may not be aware, we started last week a new series here on the prayers of Paul. So most of you know who that the Apostle Paul was an individual, a vessel that God used greatly in the establishment of the early church, and as the pen that he used to write through, to speak through, to give us the many of the epistles that we have in our New Testament. So a lot of the content of the New Testament was penned by the Apostle Paul as inspired and directed by the Spirit of God. And so as we think about him, we saw or we observed that the reason for starting or having this series is that God included these prayers of Paul in the various letters that he wrote in the New Testament. And we observed that there is between 25 and 30 of them that are recorded in Scripture. And if that many prayers of one person are recorded, then stands to reason that there's some great value and benefit to our looking at them, studying them, and making some observations, and hopefully some applications in our own lives from reading and looking at the prayers of somebody who is being who is willing to be led by the Lord like the Apostle Paul was in his life. So we had started that series last week, and this week now we're going to move on to the next prayer of Paul. And it emphasizes this principle that I'm talking about in terms of our definition of what it means to be like-minded and how it involves a common unity in essentials and a harmony amongst believers more so than it does being cookie-cutter copies of one another. So let's turn, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 7 this morning. Now, one thing I wanted to say about that, sometimes you get the idea that there's a huge difference between, say, a topical message or a series like this and verse-by-verse teaching through, say, a book, like we're going to teach through the whole book of Romans. And the reality is it's somewhat different, but it's not all that different in the sense that when you look at a book-by-book I mean, a verse-by-verse study through a book, each, each individual lesson has a topic to it. It has a, a title or a main theme or a main point that is being brought across. And in doing so, you cross-reference and you look at some of the other passages of Scripture that reinforce that principle or show us the cohesiveness of God's Word. So in a sense, each individual message within a verse-by-verse study in a book is actually a topical message. It has a topic. It has a point to it. 
Now, when you think about a series like this, the prayers of Paul, this is what you'd say is more a traditional topical series, but yet, what are we going to as we're having this study? We're going to individual verses. And we go to those verses, we're going to go through those verses verse by verse. And so there's an essence that it's a verse by verse study, even when it's a topical study, and it's a topical study, even when it's a verse by verse study. So I hope that you, I hope that you see that and recognize that as you look at the content of how we seek to put the emphasis on the specific words of the Word of God in our messages instead of just a human a human interpretation of them or a human opinion about things of faith, but we seek to find our standard from the Word of God and actually look at the words of Scripture and then extrapolate from there. So as we come into this section in Romans 15, let's read it together. It would help if I was there. Romans 15, let's read verses 5 through 7, the second prayer of Paul that we're going to look at. Now me, the God of patience, that's how we know it's a prayer, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also receives or received us to the glory of God. So when we look at the context of this prayer, that will help us to get a better sense of what Paul is focusing on here. So the general teaching or the context that has led up to this is that Christian love is characterized by a willingness to sacrificially prefer others over self. So chapter 14 and what leads up to this part of chapter 15 is there's a controversy and there's disagreement in this Roman congregation. There's disagreement about a specific thing. It happens to be disagreement about the kinds of foods that are appropriate to eat because some of these individuals are coming from a Jewish background where certain foods were said to be inappropriate under the law of Moses. And so when Christ came along, he said, he, he said there's nothing that is improper for you to, to eat. All things were made by me. All things are available for your potential benefit. It's the heart or the attitude or the thinking behind it that is my primary or is the primary concern. And so certain more mature believers, they didn't have an issue with some of those things, but others did. And to them, it was sinning or they felt like they were sinning or violating God's law or God's standards to use their Christian liberty in certain ways as it related to food. And so the principle that Paul was trying to teach in, verse four, in chapter 14 was that Christian love is characterized by this willingness to sacrifice your own personal liberty for the benefit of others, to prefer somebody else's spiritual well-being, to not want to stumble them or distract them or to be a negative influence on their ability to trust the Lord or have a walk of faith when all you'd need to do is to forego some rights that you had, some liberty that you had, some freedom that you had for the benefit of another instead of being focused on yourself. And at times, that involved foregoing your liberty in Christ to avoid being a spiritual hindrance to your spiritual brother. Now catch this, even when he is wrong. It involved foregoing your liberty in Christ when Christ said, there's, there's nothing that is preventing you from eating these things. But would you be willing to, because somebody else is wrongfully hung up on this, they're more immature in their understanding of the things of faith, they're not right, they're wrong. 
But even though they're wrong, would you forgo your own liberties in Christ to benefit them or to keep them from stumbling is the idea. So even though they're, they need to grow, even though they're wrong about their objection to these certain behaviors that you have the liberty to be engaging in, you can read about it specifically in chapter 14, 14 through 23, is, gives you more of that context. We don't have time for it this morning. But even though they're mistaken, even though they're wrong, will you set aside self for the benefit of another? And you know what? There's nothing harder for people to do than to set aside their rights, to set aside their freedom. And I'm not talking about it in, uh, in a more general uh, nas- you know, national sense or constitutional sense. I'm talking about it in the sense of Christian liberty. I have the right to do this or that depending on my attitude as unto the Lord. But it becomes wrong if my doing what is right for me ends up not serving in love to you. And that's hard to wrap your mind around. The, the natural reaction to it is to say, well, get over it. The natural reaction is to say, well, you need to grow up. You need to say, why are you so weak-minded? Why are you so weak in your faith? If you understood the things of faith properly, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But is that a cloak of love that you're wearing while you're having that attitude that says, I wouldn't be willing to set aside one drop of my liberty, even if it would benefit you. See, that's not the kind of love that Christ modeled for us. Christ's love was sacrificial. Christ's love was selfless. As he foregoed, he, he gave away his own rights. He gave away his own freedoms. He died in the place of the guilty. He died in the place of sinners. And that's the model that we'll see. That's why Paul keeps pointing back to Christ as the example and the model of how we ought to interact with each other as it relates to being like-minded. So that's the context, is that there's disagreement amongst believers taking place as Paul's going to pen these, let, these words here that we come to in verse 5 through 7. Now, the summary of it is the more mature or strong believer who is thinking properly shouldn't see sacrificing his Christian liberty as burdensome but should instead seek to build up or edify his less mature or weaker brother in love. And that's what we get in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter 15. We could read them. We then, who are strong, strong in what sense? Strong in the sense of being more mature than a less mature fellow believer. Ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, the one who's less mature, and not to please ourselves. We should focus on how we could serve them in love instead of how can we serve ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Leading to what? Leading to edification, a word for to build up. For even Christ did not please himself. Here's our example again. But as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, meaning he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus did. He became our sin debt penalty. He paid the debt in our place. He died in our place when he was sinless. He bore our reproaches. He bore our iniquities. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree and he nailed them to the cross when he said, it is finished. I have fully satisfied the sin debt penalty owed by all men for all time, all sins, past, present, and future. It is finished. The debt has been paid. It's been paid in full. There's nothing left for you to do other than accept as a free gift my sacrifice on your behalf. And the question isn't, what can you do for Jesus? The question is, 
Will you accept by faith what he offers you as a free gift, what he's already done for you? Will you put your confidence, will you put your trust in his finished work on your behalf? And the Bible says the moment that we believe that, we will not perish, but we will have as a present possession everlasting life. So many people rattle through this verse on the wall, John three sixteen, without ever really understanding what it means. It's God's love for the world that motivated him to send his only son. Now, what's your part in this? That whoever believes in him, to believe means to put your confidence in, to put your trust in. These words are synonyms. They all could, that same word pistos could be interpreted or it could be translated with believe, trust, put your confidence in something. So whoever believes in, puts all of his eggs in the basket that is what Jesus already accomplished for him on the cross, it says, should not or will not perish. Not might not, but will not perish, but will have. This isn't might have, will have everlasting life. And how long does everlasting go on for? Well, forever. Could, could you have everlasting life if it could be lost? Could you have as a present possession everlasting life if it would be taken away from you? And the reality is you could not. And who would the focus be on if it could be taken away from you? It'd be focused on you doing something to work for, to earn, or to maintain the salvation that God gave you as a gift. For it to be a gift, it had to be freely given and it has to be freely received. To be a gift, it can't be taken back. Even children understand that. And that's why the gospel message was meant to be simple enough that children could understand it. That God gives you a gift. Your part in it is to receive it or accept it. The way you do that is putting your confidence, your trust, your faith in the completeness of what Jesus did on your behalf because he loved you so much. Not because you were so attractive to him. Not because you had done so much for him. But because he loved you even when you were broken. Even when you were sinful. Even when you were without hope. God and his love made a way for you. And the question is, will you accept it? Will you put your confidence in it? Will you trust it? And the Bible says the moment you do, you have everlasting life. And you will never perish. Neither will anyone pluck you out of his hand. It says in 1 John 5, 13, these things I have written to you who have believed, that's your only part in this, in the name of the Son of God. I wrote these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. K-N-O-W, that you can know this. Some people think to say that I know I'm going to heaven when I die is a sign of pride or arrogance. You know, it's the exact opposite. It's a sign of humility because it recognizes that I haven't done anything to earn it and I can't do anything to keep it or maintain it or bring it across the finish line. It's all him, all of the time, every part. None of it had anything to do with me other than I was the beneficiary of it the moment that I put my faith and accepted what Christ had done for me. Amen? And you think that's the good news of the gospel. That's not pride. That's humility saying that, thank you, God, for doing for me what I could never do for myself. You see, heaven isn't a reward for good people. It's a gift that's freely offered to sinners who recognize that apart from Christ, I am hopeless. We move on. So that's the idea here. We're talking about giving up Christian liberty is not burdensome. Giving up Christian liberty is what brotherly love is all about. And that's our introduction to our section here. Now, general observations before we dive in about this prayer. The prayer is short. How long was it? Not as long as this sermon's going, huh? It was a a short prayer. 
What kind of a prayer was it? It was an intercessory prayer. So fancy theological terms. Intercessory just means you're praying on behalf of somebody else. And again, Paul is focused on the spiritual well-being of these believers more so than he is the temporal or the physical realm. So let's dive in. Uh, I'll put up the first verse here, Romans 15, 5, up on our screen. And let's just break it down a little bit more. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And this is the bulk of the prayer. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time here this morning. But may God grant you. So if you want to break this down into the primary parts of this prayer, the prayer is effectively may... uh, May God grant you and then to be like-minded. That's the thrust of this prayer. Now, there's more fillers in there that, will, that describe a little bit more what God is like, describe his character, but the main thought here is, may God grant you. Now, this is the very definition of an intercessory prayer. It's a prayer that's offered on behalf of others. Paul isn't saying, may God grant me some kind of a petition. He's saying, may God grant you, and then he's going to say something that will be beneficial to their spiritual well-being. And the thing you can observe here is that God alone is capable of enabling positive spiritual growth in a believer's life. You see, Paul is recognizing that just with the prayer. May God grant you. He, he knows that I'm not capable of doing this. Neither are the believers themselves capable of manufacturing this outcome. It's God that can grant this to be true in these believers' lives. You can't force this or make this happen in your own life, and you can't force it or make it happen in others' lives. Parents, you can't make this be true of your children. You can't make positive spiritual growth happen in your children's life. You can just try to encourage and promote and hopefully prayerfully bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, will you bring this about? Will you work on my child's thinking. Will you get a hold of them in a way that they could taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you get a hold of their thinking in a way that they would see these are not just words written on a page. You're a personal God who loves them individually and personally and is desperately interested in their lives. Not just the lives of the whole world, but them specifically that you have a deep interest in the affairs of their lives, that you're intensely interested in them. Will you show that to them? Will you make that clear to them? Will you help me live that out in my own life in a way that they could see that relationship between me and you so they could see that's possible for them too? You know, but that's something that it starts with this prayerful attitude that says, I can try to be an example of this as the Lord works through me and works in me, but I need to pray that the Lord could bring this about in their lives too. The life of my sister, the life of my friend, the life of my husband, the life of my wife, the life of my mother. We can be praying for those things because it's God that's capable of bringing about those outcomes. We move on. It says, may God grant you, but how is God described here? This is awesome. May the God of patience and comfort grant you. The God of patience and comfort. Observe how God is described. The God of patience and comfort. Now we say, see this little word of. It tells us that these qualities both describe God and are sourced in God. Meaning if you are looking for patience and comfort, they come from God. They're divine qualities. They're not the kinds of qualities that can be manufactured by your flesh. 
They're not human qualities that are easily manufactured by your human nature. These are divine qualities. They describe God, but they're also produced by and sourced in God. You see, you don't naturally possess patience and comfort. Anyone disagree with that? You're not naturally patient and you don't naturally have comfort. See, naturally you're impatient and naturally you're always thrashing around. You're not at eat. You're not at peace. You don't have comfort. Your soul is disquieted. You're never satisfied. It says that the flesh is never satisfied. The flesh doesn't know what it is to be content. See, to be comfortable is to be content. The flesh is always looking for the next best thing. You get a brand new thing, and a week later, you're looking for the next thing. You, you see that at Christmas time with young people, don't you? They rip open with great enthusiasm those packages, don't they? Especially when they're young. 35 seconds later, the toys are discarded along the wall, and they're playing with the box that the toy came in. Why? Because that brief moment of satisfaction is quickly lost. How about we, let's grow up a little bit from little kids. You save up your hard-earned dollars. You're trying to be a good parent. You want to make your child's life better than yours was. And so you get them that shiny new bike. We'll talk bikes because we're, we're a bike family. You get them that shiny new bike, which they're quite expensive. And the next thing you see, they're really excited about it. And they take care of it. They even occasionally maybe put it away for a while. And then this thing that you've, in your own mind, you've saved up for and sacrificed for, next thing you know, it's being thrown around, being dropped. They come wheeling into a stop and they just drop the bike to the ground. All in one motion, they kind of jump off the bike. The bike crashes and off they go. Come to your own life. Grow up a little bit more than that. You're a little less obvious about it, but that thing that you were so excited about because your soul was never satisfied, always looking for the next thing, you finally got that thing, and where is it now? It's got two and a half feet of snow on it. It hasn't run in three years. It's tucked away behind the garage. You see, the heart of man by nature is not satisfied. It doesn't have this comfort of peacefulness that comes from trusting or seeing that God is in control and that God can work all things together for good and that you have absolutely everything that you need. Long thing there, but the idea is you don't naturally possess these things. What a nice little observation. God is that, though. God is the source of that, and it describes his qualities. He is patient. He is the God of all comfort. And so that is the kind of God you have, and he wants to provide you with those kind of qualities, those supernatural qualities, through the power of the inworking of his spirit inside of you. You see, patience refers to a steadfast endurance, specifically the inward fortitude necessary to withstand hardship or stress. That's what God wants to give you, steadfast endurance. Not because you naturally have it, but because he can make that true of you through the power of his spirit working in you. Comfort refers to a source of consolation or encouragement in times of disappointment. And do we desperately need that? We certainly do. And God is the source of that. So then we move on. So we have, may God grant you. Now, this is the specific request on behalf of these believers. May God grant you 
to be like-minded toward one another. This has been the thrust of our message. This is the thrust of this passage. This is the thrust of this prayer. The specific request is, may God grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Now, I want you to note this. Paul wouldn't have to pray about this if it occurred naturally. You see, we keep coming back to that. There's so many things we need to pray for because they don't occur naturally. They're things that God has to provide or undertake to make true or possible in our lives. So Paul prays it because it doesn't occur naturally. We're not naturally like-minded toward one another. Now, let's break down this like-minded. It involves two or more people having a spirit of unity, a spirit of unity, not having identity and thinking. We'll just keep diving into it. Several translations of this phrase translate it, live in harmony with one another. Maybe the version you have in front of you does. May God grant you to live in harmony with one another. It is the harmonious thinking about the value and importance of one another that is in focus here more so than agreement about specific ideology or doctrine. It is the harmonious thinking about the value and importance of one another that is in focus here. How do you know that? That's the context. That's, there's disagreement taking place within the local assembly about the application of truth. And some are seeing it one way, incorrectly. Some are seeing it correctly. But there's disagreement that's caused by that. And so Paul is saying, my prayer for you in that context is that God would grant you to have harmony or unity of spirit despite that conflict or disagreement. See, being like-minded does not involve agreeing on every particular or eliminating every difference of opinion. That's not what it means. Romans 12, 16, you can turn there. We're closed anyway. Turn to Romans 12, 16. I'll put it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But Romans 12, 16 kind of gives us that flavor a little bit. We'll, we'll see that being of the same mind. It doesn't involve agreeing on every particular or eliminating every difference of opinion. Here it is on the screen. It says this, be of the same mind, now same mind toward one another. It, it's not even putting the focus on the content of a disagreement, but it's having a focus on have the same mind toward one another. Meaning, again, we're looking at this from a perspective of having a sense of value and importance that we place on one another in Christian love and charity. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And in, in this specific context, sometimes we're dealing with preferring others, preferring certain people, having cliques, but not having the same view of the rest of your fellow believers. But you see, do not be wise in your own opinion. Many of the things that cause conflict in the church are exactly that. They're not doctrine. They're opinions. Sometimes it's an opinion about doctrine. I would dare say more often than not, it has nothing to do with doctrine. It's just disagreements about philosophical things. Ideological things. Not necessarily biblical things. And when you learn that somebody disagrees with you, you naturally distance yourself from them, even though it had nothing to do with critical core doctrine. That's why you talk about keeping the main things the main things. That's why you talk about unity in essentials. What are the essentials that we need to be focused on 
having unity around. And there are some. We'll touch on that a little bit in a minute. It doesn't mean there's no distinctions. It doesn't mean there's no doctrines that are important. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we have to agree on or should agree on in order to have sweet fellowship together. If we don't agree about certain core things about doctrine, it's going to be difficult to fellowship together. In fact, the Bible instructs at times that fellowship may be impossible in those situations. That there might be a biblical need for separation because there's a perversion of the doctrines of Jesus Christ that are so great that how could you lift them up by sort of coming alongside of it in a way that would be perceived as you supporting those things. And so there's things to be aware of, but that's not really the focus that Paul's getting at with being like-minded toward one another. Remember, in the immediate context, there is not complete doctrinal agreement. Paul is not expecting them to hold the same opinions about the debated issues, but to have harmony among themselves as a byproduct of a common love for Christ, a common love for one another, a common outlook, objective, and purpose. We come back to that unity in essentials. He's saying, I have this expectation that you would have harmony amongst yourselves based on these commonalities that you have in Christ that are big enough to overcome some of this disagreement. You see, the Roman church was a diverse community, much more diverse than this church community. It was a diverse community made up of Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, rich and poor, spiritually mature and spiritually immature. Now, we have some of that in this congregation where there's diversity in our, congreg- in our, in our faith community, but not like it was in the Church of Rome. It was difficult for them to accept one another and or agree with one another about every le- last little thing because they came from such very different backgrounds. And Paul says, I want you to have unity or harmony of thinking, harmony of spirit, regardless of even this present disagreement that's in front of you about this specific application of Christian liberty. Now, I want you to not get confused. This does not mean that doctrinal agreement is unimportant or that believers should compromise truth or avoid making doctrinal distinctions. It means that you should keep the main things the main things and handle any disagreement with a spirit of love humility, and selfless sacrifice. The question isn't, will there be disagreement? There is. The question is, how should you respond to it? How much importance should you place on it? Should you distance yourself from people because of it? Or should you pursue them with Christian love, with a sense of humility, and with an attitude of selfless sacrifice as you see yourself as potentially a brother that the Lord could use in that individual's life to help them grow, to help them have more Maturity as it relates to something that they're confused about. And too often we do the opposite. See, Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Same word. Same idea right there. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, meaning one soul or one life striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, it's not unity in every opinion, unity in every belief, unity about every application of doctrine. It's a oneness that we have with our common bond in Christ, our common sense of His love for us and our common love for one another and our common mission, our common objective, the big picture of what we're striving together for, which in the case of this 
community and every community of faith, the Bible says that we should be striving together for the furtherance of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, does that mean there's other things that we can get behind or promote or, or advance? Absolutely. But the main things are to lift up Jesus Christ, to exalt him, to bring glory to him, which we're going to get into here in a second. So how can you enjoy a spirit of unity with others? If this is the prayer that there would be a spirit of unity amongst these believers, that God would grant that, then how can you enjoy a spirit of, spirit of unity with others? And I'd say there's a few aspects to it, but one of them is to consciously spend time pursuing and greeting those you don't normally talk to. Look around the family of faith. Look around at the fellow believers that you come into contact with. Do you normally give them the time of day? Did they once irritate you and so you've written them off forever? Or could you, in a spirit of love and forgiveness, let go of any root of bitterness that's crept in there? Let go of that overemphasis that you're placing on minor things and instead get back to the main thing and say, and see that believer as a brother in Christ, a brother who you're to love desperately and you're to pursue the way God pursues and to love the way God loves and to want to live life with in the way that God wants us to fellowship with one another with a sense of how can I build them up. So that's one thing, is to pursue people that you don't normally talk to. The second is to minimize differences. I'm not saying never make distinctions about critical and key doctrinal matters. I'm saying minimize differences that have nothing to do with the Bible. Don't make your conversations about all of those ancillary things, all of those extra biblical things. Focus on the thing you have in common. And by focusing on what you have in common, you won't be so obsessed about what you have that's different with that person. The other thing is to seek common ground for fellowship. What common ground do we have? Well, hopefully it starts with a common belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hopefully it starts with realizing that apart from me you can do nothing, as Jesus say, says, and recognizing that apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives, we can do nothing that would please God. Hopefully it starts with an understanding that once you're in God's family, He'll never let you go, that your future is secure, that we have a bright future to look forward to. Hopefully it starts with key things like that and then builds from there. Now we have this phrase, according to Jesus Christ. Look back at our text here. We have according to Jesus Christ is how verse 5 ends. So may God grant you, what kind of God? The God of patience and comfort. May he grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And the idea there is, as is fitting for followers of Christ, or as was demonstrated by Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus ministered on behalf of others, not for himself. Jesus' focus was, how could I be used to benefit others, not how can I lift myself up? And it's fitting for those who bear his name that we should imitate him. He was our ultimate example. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to give you a sense of, according to Jesus Christ, or as was demonstrated by Jesus Christ, as is fit for followers of Christ, what that might entail or might that, what that might look like. So, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, as we're going through our New Testament, chapter 2, and I'll put it up on the screen. It'll be a little bit hard to read for those who don't have their Bible with them. But I want to read eight verses here. First it says, Therefore, 
if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, notice that we have this. What is the motives for this? What is driving this? What is the umbrella that's over all of this? What's the overcoat over all of this? If there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, remember we're talking about unity of Spirit. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about having this mindset where we have like-mindedness, a spirit of unity. So if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy toward one another, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There we have it again. Having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So all that I've just said, talking about let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Have lowliness of mind, meaning humility. Esteem others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. It was Christ Jesus who showed us and demonstrated what that kind of thinking could be like. Now, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, though he was fully God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because he was part of the triune God's head, fully equal in every way with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But he made himself, even though he was God, he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant, and he came in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So when we say according to Christ Jesus, we're talking about as was modeled by Jesus Christ, as an imitation of Jesus Christ, as is fitting for those who bear his name, that we would be like-minded, have that spirit of unity, living in harmony with one another, keeping the main things the main things, being gracious and loving towards one another in the face of disagreement, sacrificing ourselves, even when it relates to our Christian liberty, for the benefit of others, because we're seeking to be directed by God's Spirit. God's Spirit, when He's working in and through us, God's Spirit shows Himself through the qualities that are consistent with who God is. And God was humble. God was selfless. God was sacrificial in His application of love for people. Now, what's the ultimate objective of living in harmony with fellow believers? Here we have it. That you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate objective of living in harmony with fellow believers being one-minded is that you may glorify God. You see, it brings glory to God when we live in harmony with each other. Believers united together in Christ puts the spotlight on Him. You see that? When we're united together with a common purpose, what are we doing? We're lifting up Jesus Christ. We're striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. We preach Him. We proclaim Him. So together when we proclaim Him and we lift Him up and when we live to be a reflection of Him, who does it put the spotlight on? Him. When we're focused on petty disagreements, differences of opinion, things that we allow to divide us, ideology, philosophy that we have that is different, petty or small or minor doctrinal disagreements. 
What does it put the focus on? Us. People. Our interactions with each other. It doesn't lift him up. What lifts him up is loving each other enough to pursue each other, to embrace each other, to work through, and to not prioritize or to de-emphasize the things we disagree about and to emphasize what we have in common, which is that we all bear his name. To be a Christian is to bear his name. I'm a Christ one when I say I'm a Christian. And that's the idea, is it brings God glory when we're united together in Christ. And see, bringing God glory should be the end goal of every aspect of your life. That should be your objective, to bring God glory. That's what you should be living to do, to lift him up. Here's a fun psalm that talks about this, about what our emphasis and what our life should be all about. The end aim or the end objective of a Christian is to lift up God, to bring him glory, which means having to humble ourselves. But it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Man, that's a different focus than we normally have. We love to sing our own praises. We love to exalt ourselves. We love to put the spotlight on ourselves. And the Bible says that the chief aim of man or objective of man should be to glorify God, to put the glory and the spotlight on him. Now, this common objective of living to lift him up or to glorify God, it should unify believers. You see this with one mind, which means with one purpose, unanimously and without dissent, meaning without any disagreement, we're going to bring glory or glorify God. With one mouth means to proclaim with one voice. Rephrased, it would say that together with one voice you may glorify God. The idea isn't to have an exact mental cookie-cutter understanding of every issue that is the same or identical to what someone else believes. That's not the focus. It's with one voice we would keep the focus on lifting him up and bringing him glory. You see this in Acts 4.24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. That's the exact same word that's being translated there. They raised their voice to God with one accord. Same idea as being like-minded. They raised their voice to God with one accord and they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. It puts the spotlight and the focus on God. So then the question is, is bringing glory to God your primary objective? Is your primary objective in gathering with fellow believers to join them with one voice in proclaiming God's greatness, his majesty, his wondrous works, his awesomeness, his righteousness and his goodness? Is this it here? That your primary focus in gathering is to lift up the name of God? To bring God glory? To praise Him? And it should be. That should be our focus as we gather together. And that common focus, that common objective, it makes some of those other disagreements seem very petty and very small, doesn't it? Because we're coming together with the right mind, the right objective, the right focus which is to lift him up. Now, the next, our last verse here, verse 7 says, Therefore receive, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So this main verb, receive here, can also be translated as accept or welcome. 
So accept one another. In light of all of this, accept one another. In light of the context, which is that there's disagreement amongst believers, he's saying, as a result of your Christian love for one another and your common objective to glorify God, this unity of spirit that you have because of your common bond in Christ, your common love for the Lord, your common love for one another, your common objective and focus, the main focus, keeping the main things the main thing, then accept one another. Now, it doesn't mean agree with everything. It doesn't mean say that this brother who's wrong in their application is right. But it says you can accept him anyway. You can love him anyway. You can minister to him anyway. You can edify him anyway. You don't have to distance yourself from him. You don't have to cause division in the church over it. You don't have to sow discord. You don't have to make little clicks with all the people that you only identify with in some small way making a small point the main point, how about identifying what you share in common with the whole body of Christ, which is Jesus Christ? How about keep the focus on him? That's sort of the idea here. Now, what's the example again? Just as Christ also received us. Christ is naturally the best example of of proper Christian thinking and behavior. Remember that Christ accepted you when you were weak. Turn to Romans chapter 5. It should be pretty... I don't know if you're still in Philippians, but you should be in Romans 5. This will be the last thing we look at here. These are verses that you should know if you don't know them anyway. It talks about how we had nothing to offer God. So remember that Christ accepted you when you were weak and without strength. Read Romans 5, 6 with me. For when we were still without strength at that time or in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So remember that Christ accepted you when you were weak. You were without strength. You weren't very mature. Now how else were you? Christ accepted you when you were ungodly. Romans 5, 6 there, we saw that in the last word there. In due time, at that time when you were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly, which was you. How else are you described? Go to verse 8. Christ accepted you, but God demonstrated, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did Christ accept you? As a sinner. There wasn't anything special about you. In fact, Christ accepted you when you were still his enemy. Look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Christ accepted you when you were weak, without strength, ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy of God. And he's saying, that's how you should accept other believers. But I don't want to. That doesn't come naturally. You're right, it doesn't. The Spirit of God should change your thinking so that you could see what you have in common as more important than what you have that is not in common. Or what is more important than what you disagree about. So what's the takeaway? Christ's kind of love accepts other believers regardless of disagreement, flaws, faults, or spiritual immaturity, and your love should too because your love is supposed to be Christ's love that is being produced in you by Christ's Spirit working inside of you. Now this kind of love manifests itself in a desire to build up, not tear down. It allows for healthy disagreement and differences of opinion, but all under the bigger umbrella of Christian love. There is no room 
in this kind of acceptance. There's no room in this kind of love for hypersensitivity, for thin skin, for negativity, for bitterness, for sowing seeds of discord, for constant criticism and complaints, disdain for leadership, and withdrawing from anyone with a differing view. There's no room for that in Christ's kind of love. There's no room for that in Christian acceptance. Christ's kind of acceptance of one another. There's no room for that in striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. There's no room for that in a spirit of unity or living in harmony with one another. But yet we make excuses for all of that. When our flesh is driving the ship, all of those things can be true of you. And they're all to the detriment of the body of Christ. And you see that, receive one another, accept one another as Christ has accepted us, to the glory of God, again, it ends with an, a repeat of what we saw in verse 6. The ultimate objective is to bring God glory. Christian unity brings glory to God. So, biblically, to be like-minded is to have a spirit of harmony. God made each individual unique for the benefit of the church body. When the Bible exhorts believers to be like-minded, the focus is not on everyone conforming to a common mold, or adopting identical opinions and beliefs. Now, too often, consciously and unconsciously, churches corporately and individuals within them insist on eliminating the very uniqueness that God ordained as a blessing. The uniqueness amongst us is how iron sharpens iron. It's a blessing to us that we're not all the same. It's a blessing to us that we don't see the world the same, that we don't even see Scripture the same sometimes. That's a blessing to us. It can be for our benefit. And consciously and unconsciously, we naturally want to rub that out of each other, to make everybody a cookie cutter of the next person, to insist on their agreeing with us in order to fellowship with us. And that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the model that we see Paul praying for here. So let's be steadfast, unshakable, and unmovable as it relates to essential doctrine, our common bond in Christ, and our shared mission to bring God glory through proclaiming the gospel of His dear Son. But let's accept one another, including the differences and disagreements, in love just as Christ accepted us, and keep the main things the main things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love that was demonstrated through your willingness to come to earth and die in the place of sinners. Pray that that's the thing that could inform our mind, that's the thing that could permeate our thinking so that we would see each other through the lens of love, through the lens of acceptance that you saw us through, that we could accept one another the way you have given us as a blueprint, not through perverting essential doctrine, not through being unwilling to take a stand for anything or to ever make a biblical distinction, but when we make a stand and when we make a distinction, to do it in love, to do it in a way that doesn't push people away, to do it in a way that has the other person's best interests in mind, that when we disagree, we could do it graciously, that we could do it with a sense that what is more important, what is the ultimate objective, what is the ultimate purpose, and should we be putting so much emphasis on this, or should we de-emphasize that? Should we find what we have in common and focus on what we have in common so that together we can have a sense of spiritual unity, a spirit of unity? Pray that we wouldn't do it through compromise, but that we would do it as directed by your Spirit through love, but in a way that's gracious. Pray that this could have been impactful to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.